I'm not sure how familiar you are with the uh, far north, but there's very, very few black bears up there, but there's bear and ground grizzlies, which are like a smaller cousin to the uh, mountain grizzlies. Not a whole lot smaller, but like a big one's like a little bigger than a big black bear, like probably a 500-pound bear and ground grizzly. So we come running back as fast as we can, and uh, the other guy, he's standing in the rocks there, kind of all out of breath. And sure enough, down sitting in my boat is a grizzly bear, just chilling in the boat, sitting there. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by the fly crate the flycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing the fly crate offers a monthly fly club we select patterns every month for your home waters with membership you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area along with the fly crates guide magazine the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door some sweet stickers discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now the flycrate.com Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. This time around, we'd like to welcome to the program Chance Presti. Now, Chance is a fisheries biologist for the Saskatchewan Ministry of Environment and also a guide for Plumbers Arctic Lodges. Chance, thanks for uh, taking the time and joining us tonight. Appreciate it. Oh, no problem. We got a lot of ground we can cover here, but I, I always like to start the program off with just kind of a... A little introduction about yourself and kind of how you got into fly fishing to begin with. Take us back to your roots. Well, I guess for, I always like, my earliest memories would be probably fishing when I was three or four years old. Uh, my dad just always take me into the boat fishing and mostly it'd be for like perch, walleye, pike, but we did have stock trout lake near home and uh, it's probably about a 20 minute drive to a fairly decent stock lake with rainbows. And I guess when I was probably, I'd have been like 10 or 11, I saw the back page of like a some type of catalog for uh ordering fly tying gear and it just i just became infatuated with it and decided i wanted to tie flies so I probably talked about it for about a year before i uh my parents allowed me to spend all my allowance money on it so i ordered just a really cheap kind of vice and a stick a 20 dollars tool kit and uh material to tie probably three or four flies like your classic woolly bugger and i think like an adams and gold rib tears here and so I ordered materials for those and then quickly realized that, you know, that's a fair amount of money, and uh, especially for like a 12-year-old. And yeah, started tying flies and tied flies for a few months and then got to do something with the flies. So kind of started, bought a fly rod, a really makeshift, just cheap fly rod to fish them and probably went at least a year without catching anything on the fly rod. Uh, no one in the area fly fished, didn't have any idea what I was doing cast for probably a year with my line a wait for it line on backwards uh before i realized that i flipped <laughs> it around and like i was like oh man i can actually cast more than 10 feet i was like this is awesome and that was kind of a i was probably with 13 or 14 and uh fishing out of a canoe on lady lake was a lake i grew up near that had rainbows and i hooked into probably uh i don't know four and a half five pound rainbow at that 22 to 24 incher and uh pr- pretty common fish in that lake at that time just on a, a bully bugger underneath an indicator I'd fashioned because my casting is pretty bad. So the less casting I had to do the better. And uh, yeah, I caught that fish and got it up to the boat and uh, the canoe I was by myself and got it in. And that was kind of game over for me. It was just a uh, slide downhill after that into the old fly fishing world. So, and that's been, yeah, I've been tying flies for about 18 years now. So 
fly fishing for most of that as well. It sure looks to me like your resume is pretty deep and you have totally immersed yourself in, in the world of fins from what I can tell. Um, you're pursuing master's degree in, in fisheries ecology. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, I actually would have just finished that last spring. Um, did undergrad biology at the University of Saskatchewan, just standard biology program there, and then uh, rolled over and did a master's degree. And I did that looking at, um, I was focused on Lake Diefenbaker and actually on the aquaculture facility there. And just um, kind of on the impact of that facility on the diets of native and naturalized fish in the area. And um, mainly on whitefish. Well, that was the result anyway. The whitefish around the pens are eating the feed from the pens and uh, sort of the escaped rainbows are hanging around there a bit and eating the feed. And then they're essentially getting not obese, but really, really fat. <laughs> there's a huge diet subsidy in that local area, but it's an extremely localized effect. Um, I was kind of hoping to see it kind of, as you move further away, be more of a linear relationship, but it's kind of, if you're within 500 yards of the cages, you see those fish that are eating the, the pellets. And if you're any further than that, you really don't see that many of them. So these fish look like superheroes probably to, the, oh, to yeah. every other fish. They'll be the same weight as, or the same length as other fish in the other areas of the lake and double the weight. So relative weight, just a, a measure of how, like, um, how thick a fish is for its length, essentially. And most of the white fish in deep Bay have a relative weight of around 70, which is below average. Average would be 100. Now, those ones around the fish farm have relative weights of anywhere from 100 up to 150 based on uh, exactly how obese they are, so... Well, Lake Diefenbaker sure came on everyone's radar a few years back when some of those monster <laughs> rainbows started showing up that looked uh, almost made up. The just the girth, yeah, it's quite the food supply. And then uh, with those, that particular batch of fish that escaped from that aquaculture facility, there's a big escape. The ice broke some cages back in probably 2002 to four. Um, yeah, those fish just grew like crazy because there was really a down cycle in the predator species in the reservoir at the time. And then on top of that, just the, um, the sheer amount of food in that lake. And there's really no deep water predator in there. So some of those fish just started eating cisco and just essentially turned into vacuum cleaners eating those cisco. And there's still the odd one in there that escapes, but there's numbers of fish just aren't there anymore. And because of that, you're just not getting that size. When you had a few hundred thousand fish escape, you had a few of them that got to be just massive. Right. I, I'm you know, Something I'm kind of curious about, like from your scientific background, so having a master's degree in fisheries ecology, does that help you in your day-to-day fishing? You know, I, I don't know. Um, I'd like to say it does. I definitely analyze things a lot deeper than most people would when I catch a fish. Like, I'm wondering how old it is, uh, what you know, what sex it is, how old it is, when it matured, a little bit of everything about the population just to get some info that way. Um, if anything, it might help predict lakes when they're like on a stock trout lake or something like that, when it's going to pick up, like based on stocking records. Um, it's kind of the reason I'm into it all is uh, fishing brought me into the scientific background in it. And then uh, the science is taking me further into the fishing, I guess. Whether or not it helps me at all, I don't know. But it, uh, it can lead to some interesting conversations around campfire anyway. So when you're uh, doing your guiding stints, is, is, this a, is this a summer gig for you? Or, or what time of year do you go yeah. up to uh, plumbers? Yeah, so historically, I've been going in, uh, I guess I first went up 2014. I, uh, I was working as a graduate student at the time, doing my master's, and I had kind of a little bit of downtime. I just caught up to, I was waiting some, for some results from a lab, and so I had a few months of downtime where I wasn't too busy. So I took the month of July and went up to Great Bear Lake, and then ended up guiding at um, on Trophy Lodge on the Smith Arm of Great Bear, uh, and then at the main Plumber's Lodge, as well as uh, at the Tree River for a little bit 
kind of got a taste of all the different lodges there. And, uh, yeah, absolutely loved it. Um, probably wish I had pursued it earlier in my career, kind of to go up. And now I, I, I'm working full time. So I take vacation leave every summer for two to three weeks and, uh, go up and get in as much as I can. So it's kind of a part-time gig, but a working vacation, uh, that's really the only way I get to do it. And I love it. I, it's, it's definitely a highlight of my summer every year. And, uh, I've gone back to Trophy Lodge last year for three weeks, and then I've done the Tree River two years before that for the uh, fly fishing weeks and char exclusive. So it'd be about anywhere from 14 to 20 days on the Tree River there in 2016-17. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the Arctic char that you target while you're up there, because I saw some some photos, uh, th- some pretty impressive fish. Yeah, so this is one part where the actual fishery background kind of comes into play. Tree River char or uh, they're unique, I'll, I'll call them. They're not really a char. They're not really a Dolly Varden. They're uh, a mix of the two, which is really weird because there's no Dolly Varden for probably a thousand miles away. I've never done the calculations to see how far they actually are. But the unique population where uh, if you actually look at the genetics of those fish, they're different from any other Arctic char and they're different from any other Dolly Varden. They're kind of their own unique, I wouldn't call them a subspecies or anything, but they're just, uh, I'd call them like a hybrid complex almost. So when I refer to them, I always call them tree river char because just, I don't like calling them Artichar or Dolly Varden because it's inaccurate. Um, mm. People call them Artichar. IGFA classifies them as Artichar. Uh, but if you actually look at some of the more recent genetics on them, they're kind of a mix. They're anywhere from 25 to 75% Dolly Varden, and which is kind of neat. And I'm guessing because of those hybrids, uh, we have like the genetic integration off both species is likely why they get to be such large sizes, which is pretty cool fish. Uh, average fish in there probably that still that eight to 10 pound range, but you see those, fa- those, like those tanks, those fish that are that 20 to 25 pound plus. And then, uh, every year there, if you're there for three weeks, you see one of those like 30 pound fish in the water. Sometimes it's on your line. Sometimes it's on your line heading downstream and you break it off. And sometimes it's just sitting there and won't bite, but you usually get to see one or two of them a year. Well, it's a pretty impressive sight with that big kite and just the colors. I've never seen colors on fish like that anywhere. Most people assume just looking at them that uh, when you show a picture that it's been edited and um, any picture I've ever put online has never had any editing done to it whatsoever. I haven't even touched up the colors at all, uh, especially for the char. You, just, you don't need to. They, uh, the pictures don't give, do them any justice either. I've seen some that are, you hold it in your hands and it actually looks like a painting. It looks fake and it's just, it's hard to believe. Uh, some of them are just kind of your normal, you have your chromish colors, the, like the ones that aren't uh, in the river to spawn that year. None of the holdovers, any of the ones that come in kind of in late August, uh, there'll be a big run of fresh chrome fish, which are probably my fun, my favorite ones to catch because they're just, they just go ballistic. They're like fresh steelhead. They've been in the river for a few days and they just go nuts. And those ones are just kind of plain chrome. And there's nothing too special about them, but those, the ones upriver that are getting ready to spawn in September there, those are those ones that are, they just turn like a fire truck in males. And yeah, they get, they're just incredible fish to see. Some of them, their whole backs and everything turn orange. Pretty wild fish. Chance, what type of flies are you throwing for these uh, tree river char? It really depends on the season. Um, earlier season, you can get away throwing bigger stuff. And late season too, I've got some kind of aggressive strikes from uh getting clients that I'll toss, you know, six inch, even even up to eight inch, like bull trout streamers we've had some success on, but that's kind of just an aggressive type strike. Um, for the most part, like smaller streamers, like a Dolly Lama is probably one of the most popular and successful flies up there. Same, same thing, like a small zonker. Some guys will toss like little kind of, you know, traditional salmon flies for them, popsicles, uh, I had a fly. It's essentially just a black egg sucking leech with uh, 
a little bit of UV polarchanil in it and uh, called it the Imperial Char Destroyer, which is what we probably caught most of the fish on when I was guiding. But I had confidence in that fly, so I'd always put it on for everybody. And it just, you know, maybe a size two kind of two inches long type thing with a black egg sucking leech. When the water gets real low and clear towards the end of the season, you can get the odd one on dry flies. We'll, uh, we'll fish them quite a bit with under an indicator, just dead drift, just uh, a real bright sunny day so you can get a long kind of a long drift before anything, uh, before you spook anything. I stick in them works really good too, but they'll spook if it's real clear. So you check a small indicator, you can drift just like a little stone fly nymph and they'll even hit ag patterns and stuff that time of year. But probably once a day, if you're doing that, uh, you'll have a fish come up and just crush the indicator. If you got guys that are willing to do it, you can throw drives or a dry dropper, like a big stone fly or hopper. And you can get the odd one doing that. It's probably my favorite way to see them caught. I've seen very few fish landed that way, but I've seen quite a few grab on. It's always quite exhilarating, but you need people that are there for a few days. A lot of the guys that come up for one day, they don't want to bugger around fishing with um, a dry fly for half the day when they're probably not going to catch anything on it. Hmm. I'm just thinking to myself as you're telling me all this. So, I mean, of all the people I've talked to, you probably are fishing for some of the most diverse species and the most diverse waters being um, where you're located going north in the summer and then now you just got back from pyramid lake you want to tell yeah. us a little bit about that trip and how that all went down yeah it's uh, i guess this would be the third time i've gone down to pyramid um the last three years same time of year that end of march beginning of april and it's kind of right when the um the summit strain of them is coming into spawn so they're cruising in the shallows and that's the introduced mm-hmm. lahontan and that uh lahontan cuts right in that water body the uh, pilot peak would be, well, they're reintroduced, but they're the native strain that had been originally in there and extirpated. So those ones are the ones that get real big, the the 20-pound plus ones. Uh, I've never tangled with anything like that. I've hooked a few probably around that 10-pound mark and just boshed it and never landed it. Usually usually my own fault, get all excited and uh, pile up the line or something and snap them off. But <laughs> this year I can say I, I did land the biggest one I hooked. I think that it was about 28 inches is a decent summit and uh, – yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, mostly indicator fishing this time of year. You can do some casting and stripping in the mornings and evenings. You can do some all day too, but there's like you just don't get the results that you're after with the with the indicators. So you can fish chironomids or um, like balanced minnows, balanced leeches, a little bit of anything under a bobber. And a lot of days, uh, slow fishing, and then there's you're usually hitting a week long trip. Uh, you know, two days for sure, if not three days, that are just phenomenal. Like that's what you're there for. That's the that's that dragon you're chasing where you get into the double digits on fish and get a few of those six, seven, eight pound fish and have a shot at a bigger one usually and get to see some big fish anyway. Uh, it's real, real cool lake. Uh, I like the fishing, but the lake itself is probably what brings me back year after year. Just you're nestled in the uh, high Sierras there. You're in a desert. It's a endoric lake, which means it's a terminal lake. So a river flows into it and nothing flows out. So it's very salty, uh, high pH water, very basic alkali water. And it, uh, essentially after like two or three days fishing there, your fingerprints are just gone. Like it just melts your fly line, melts your equipment, pretty hard <laughs> on equipment, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a fun place to fish and really not that many species in it this year. I don't think I personally caught anything other than a cutthroat trout. Um, mm. a couple of years ago, I got into a few Sacramento perch. Uh, there's a few species of sucker in there, the Tahoe sucker, and then the Kiwi, which is a, an endemic species of sucker. And that sucker doesn't occur anywhere else in the world except Pyramid Lake. It used to be in another lake joined to it, but since then it's been uh, that lake's gone dry, so it's only in Pyramid Lake. So you catch a couple of those, usually a couple of Tahoe suckers. The Sacramento perch are kind of like a perch 
a yellow perch bass hybrid almost. They look pretty cool. Um, caught a couple of those back in 2017, I guess, and uh, haven't seen one since. And I guess they're not that common in the reservoir that or in the lake, I should say. Just that year, they kind of showed up. So, being that your home base chance is is out of Larange, yeah, Saskatchewan, like that is does this extend your season? Um, like, tell us why you head down to Pyramid. I'm just curious. Oh, yeah, it, it definitely extends the season. Um, to put it in perspective, the weekend before I left, I was in southern Saskatchewan um, trying to target catfish on the, uh, through the ice, which a buddy of mine was catching some, so I went down and met up with him, and we did get into a few channel cats through the ice, which is kind of just something to check off the bucket list for me. They're a cool species, and there's not that many of them here yet. Um, but we drove on the ice, no problem. Uh, you need an extension to get through. There's about 40, 41 inches of ice. Went down to Pyramid Lake for a week. It was, you know, probably average temperature in the daytime was at plus 10 or 12. We had a couple of days in the plus 20s where you're wearing a t-shirt and you're still just sweating. It froze a couple nights, so it's not like it's super hot all the time. And then uh, I got back to Larange, and uh, yeah, there's about anywhere from eight inches to a foot of fresh snow that had snowed. There's more snow when I came home than when I left. And uh, yeah, snowmobiles ripping around in the ditches, and uh and this morning I looked out and there's a truck out driving on the ice. <laughs> so I'll probably be yeah. driving trucks on the ice for a week or two yet here because we still got 40 inches so of you, perfect ice. So Yeah, fair enough. I, I'm curious how you got into, like, when you did your first season guiding chance, um, yep. tell us about that and, and, and what do you take away? What was your takeaway from that? that was, it was an eye-opening experience. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, I had a friend who met in university, uh, another biology student, we ended up also doing a master's and uh, we were in the same biology honors course. So I got to know him over the years and he, I, he just, he'd show me pictures a few times of these great big lake trout and just blew my mind. And he's always saying like, got to know him pretty good. He's saying, you got to get up there and guide, man, like come and do this. And so I kind of knew I'd have, if they needed guys, they'd, uh, I've kind of had a way in there. So then I waited till I had time to do it. And I went up there and didn't know what to expect. And I uh, didn't really, he wasn't there then when I went up. So I didn't really know anybody going up there. And uh, yeah, I went up and everything was kind of foreign to me. I'd fished for lake trout a bit, but fishing for lake trout in Saskatchewan and fishing for lake trout in Great Bear Lake are two very different things. Now that I've lived in northern Saskatchewan, it's a little bit similar to what I've done at Great Bear, at least in spring when the well, lakers are shallow. But on Great Bear, you're not fishing them deep. You're not jigging. You're uh, essentially covering as much water as possible, trolling to try and find those big fish. Once you find concentrations of fish, you can catch them, catch them on the fly rod, catch them, spin it. Uh, checking spinning gear, bait casting, or um, you can even get them a dry fly, some of the smaller subspecies. But yeah, I just, mm-hmm. I went up there and you fly over this lake in a float plane. I flew up there on the float plane and you're flying and flying and flying and flying. It's like a three hour flight from Yellowknife and yet probably half of that you're going over the lake and it's just, it's mind boggling looking down there. The start of July, there's ice everywhere, still ice there. Get to the lodge. The ice is maybe a mile from the lodge that year, that time of year. And I was just like, this is a long ways north. <laughs> and then you get there and you can just dip a cup in the water and drink the lake right out of the, just straight out of a cup. It's probably the best tasting water I've ever had. And yeah, it's a really, really cool lake. Uh, you go there once and everybody says you get bitten by the bear because it's pretty much all you can think about after that. And I know uh, I had the option of probably going back to the Tree River last year for the char exclusive again for that same period in August. And, uh, I just needed to go back to Great Bear, so I got back to Trophy Lodge, and I uh, still got a boat, get a 50-pound laker in my boat. haven't done that yet, so got some in the high 40s, but I never broke that big 5-0, so Trophy Lodge is the place to do that, so that's where I'm going back this summer for a couple of weeks. 
Good stuff. We're chatting today with Chance Presty. Chance is a fisheries biologist and guide for Plumbers Arctic Lodges. Could you take us through your ideal day on the water? It's it's something I like to ask because um, you've you've obviously fished a lot of different waters. But if you could have your day your way, how would that look? Ideal day would probably start before sun up if I could. Um, I'll I'll mention what the realistic day would be afterwards. Uh, on a week-long trip, you usually get two or three ideal days, and then the realistic days start kicking in once the, uh, you're a little sleep-deprived and tired. But ideally, get up yeah, first thing in the morning, see that sunrise, uh, especially in the shoulder season, spring and fall. It's a lot easier to do when it sunrises at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. I don't know. I like I like challenging fish. Um, you would have asked me that 10 years ago. I would just have catch as many fish as possible or as many big fish as possible. But now it's, I'd be fishing for something that, I'm not that familiar with ideally and would be challenging to catch. Um, so you, like a big lake trout or, or I go in for steelhead or anything like that. Something a little bit different that I'm not that familiar with. I always like just trying something new and trying to get that next step and do something I haven't done before. Um, I do like catching, just going to a stock trout lake here and catching a whole bunch of rainbows or browns or whatever. That's always a good time. But ideally, yeah, something challenging. Usually with the shot, not necessarily of a big fish, but maybe a rare fish something unique ideally like in saskatchewan it's not that often i get to do it but chasing wild fish um and ideally native fish is even better yet something that evolved in that habitat really really kind of that does it for me i guess that uh you mm-hmm. get to see that fish in its native habitat where it evolved we don't really have any salmonid species here other than grayling and lake trout so i like targeting those um we do have some wild like self-sustaining populations which i like as well because even though they've only been established there for 30 to 50 years they're kind of starting to adapt to the water body and you can see differences between rivers of the the wild fish um and then i like catching a fish or two early in the day just to get that get the skunk off your back and uh after that i relax a lot usually just kind of take it all in and uh ideally a nice scenic area get to see some sights and something different um flowing water is always nice too as much as i fishing like fishing lakes there's just something romantic about seeing water more so hearing water flow the kind of just, Absolutely. Uh, very relaxing feeling um more realistic day probably two or three days into a fishing trip would be uh getting up a little past sun up like anywhere from one to five hours past sun up depending how far into the trip it is <laughs> and then uh getting out there nice and late sometimes being the second wave on the water is better than being the first because it's not as crowded i'll say that much uh, which is known to happen especially after if you're a two weeks steelheading trip there. So like I did last fall, about a week into it, you have a few lazy days. And sometimes those are the best days of fishing because everybody else pounded the water in the morning and they're gone and it's rested for six to seven hours. And you just fish one pool for a couple hours and catch a couple fish. And you're like, God, that, that was better than I did yesterday when I got up at 4 a.m. So yeah. <laughs> it's funny how that so works. Yeah. So there's a mix of uh, what ex- expectation versus reality sometimes, I guess. But it, uh, it definitely, I know like this Pyramid Lake trip, I always try to, get out there for legal fishing time. It's an hour before sunup. So I think it was around 5.40 kind of roughly when you were there this year. And you're getting up four every day or three some days because you're going down and holding a spot because you want to fish one of the more popular spots. So you're sitting there on shore one morning. I was tying flies for probably an hour and a half before it was legal fishing time. <laughs> it's a headlamp in the dark just to hold that spot. But then there's other days too. Like one day it was raining and I woke up and looked at the time and just went right back to sleep and got up at like 6 a.m. and got out there fishing probably an hour after legal fishing time, I'll 
no one else is out yet. It's pouring rain, so it's not that much of a rush. So there's a, it depends on the day and the conditions as well. Are you fishing off of ladders or are you fishing from the shore? You know, I, I always take a ladder and uh, I try to fish off it as little as possible. Um, we just take just cheap step ladders. Some of the guys that fish there all the time, they have nice like fishing ladders that are well-designed. They're heavy, made out of a, usually out of metal, painted with a nice ladder in the front and a seat on the top. So they're comfortable. Um, probably the most comfortable thing about mine would be like a cup holder or a rod holder if I want to set the rod down. And even that's a luxury. A lot of us just have plain step ladders. Uh, sometimes tape a, a pad on the top so when you're leaning on it, it's, your knees rub it in that rather than on the, the metal of the, or the aluminum of the ladder itself. Hmm. But I did one full day off a ladder this year and I was pretty glad to get back on solid ground after uh, two thirds of the way through the day. Um, a lot of the places we fished the last this year and the year before have kind of big rock outcroppings and then uh, some sand beaches nearby. So you can fish off the rocks. They almost act as a ladder in a lot of cases. Right. And then if you're off the sand beaches, usually you don't need a ladder unless other people are fishing off ladders. Um, if you're the first person to the beach, there's no need to be in a ladder because all those ladders you're usually doing are pushing those fish like five feet further out or whatever it is, the depth difference. Because instead of cruising in three feet of water right in tight to shore, you're cruising in five feet of water, 10 feet in front of the guys on ladders. You'll even see sometimes guys on ladders and there'll be fish swimming behind them. It's like, what are you doing out there? But mm. it's kind of the mentality in lots of those places that you got to be on that ladder. So if there's no one around fishing on ladders, I never get on one and, unless there's a reason to. Uh, take your sight fishing to fish out from there or something like that. But generally speaking, uh, I try to stay off the ladder as much as possible just because they're, like I said, they're they're punishing to stand on and fish all day. Yeah, I can imagine. You can't really, I mean, if you want to put all your weight into something and just really plant your feet. I mean, whenever I go for a, a longer cast, you really need your, your solid footing, don't you? Yeah, and you try to work that ladder into the, the ground as much as possible there. And it's, <laughs> a lot of places that have rock, like it just, it's not level, so you're kind of standing on a bit of an angle, too. And yeah, it's not my favorite way of fishing. Um, it's definitely got its upside, too, for spotting fish. There are, they're used for a reason. If they, if they weren't uh, effective, they wouldn't be getting used down there all the time. There's just lots of beaches you don't need to use a ladder at, especially if nobody else is. Oh, I see. But there's, yeah, if you show up and there's five guys fishing on ladders, you don't want to be the guy casting to where they, their rod tip <laughs> is because, generally speaking, they're being on the ladder. They'll push those fish just a little bit further out. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. I have used ladders on other lakes as well, actually, now that I've thought about it, uh, around here, but that's more to get out of the water, which is, I guess, part of the reason the pyramid too is to get out of that cold water. Um, I've done that like late November here, take carried a ladder into a lake to fish, you know, only in a foot of water, but I, uh, just so I wasn't standing in the water because you freeze otherwise. Right. If you were to look back at your, your fishing from over the years, who would you single out one or two people that have been, uh, biggest influences on your fly fishing? I'd have to, at first of all, I'd just have to say my dad, the um, dad and grandpa, just fishing with him lots as kids. Uh, neither of them are fly fishermen, um, mostly pike walleye fishermen in Saskatchewan here. And uh, yeah, the fishing wasn't super great for pike or walleye, wherever. up good numbers of stuff, but nothing real big. Uh, but just got me interested and got me out of the water from day one. Uh, like I said earlier, some of my earliest remem- memories are of me on the water, either catching fish or something else that happened, maybe seeing a moose swim across the lake, anything like that. But I'd have to definitely say the two of them. Um, as far as fly fishing, I didn't meet too many people that fly fished until I was probably late teens or early 20s. I kind of started to meet some other people that fly fished. So a couple of my friends, uh, some of which don't even fly fish that much anymore, but like a, a buddy of mine named Ryan Jaworski, who went on to be a conservation officer. We fished with him a lot for a couple of years, and then uh, 
another friend of mine, Matt Tyree, spent a lot of time fishing with him. Um, as far as anybody more of a mentor, kind of, I'd say probably uh, a guy named Rick Goet that owns Battle Creek Flies down in Cypress Hills. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was probably around 20, I met him and just gave me a lot of tips and pointers and stuff. I'd never really met anybody that fished more than me or fly fished more than me at that point because fly fishing was pretty small world in Saskatchewan. It's getting to be bigger and bigger, but at that time, there's, you know, for every 150 fishermen you met, maybe one or two of them fly fished. So, right. And the chance, chances are they didn't do a whole lot of it. But he'd fly fished extensively in the province and knew quite a bit more about any of it than I did. So I picked up quite a few things from him, and uh, whenever I can, I'm down in that area. I still try to meet up with him and fish with him for a day just uh just to talk and see how things are. Um, yeah, and then a few buddies of mine here that I've just fished with extensively over the years. Uh, again, like I said, Matt Tyree, another guy named Matt Dick. Uh, spent a lot of time fishing with him. Yeah, those would be kind of the two big ones that I've just spent a lot of time with the guys, and you, you pick up stuff that each other are doing and maybe learn from each other's mistakes as you're learning from your own mistakes as well. So mm-hmm. kind of a closed world of fishing here, but it's kind of a tighter one too. Everybody kind of knows everybody a little bit. So Yeah. For sure. So when you're in and around your home waters, where do you go to talk fly fishing? Like, is there a local fly shop or coffee shop that you, you might uh, talk to some other uh, fly fishers? There's, I don't think there's a standalone fly shop anywhere in the province here currently. As I said, Battle Creek Flies and Cypress Hills used to have kind of a standalone building, but Rick just operates out of his house there now. And um, there's another one, uh, the Northern Fly Fisherman in just north of Saskatoon and a kind of a margins hole, which is almost like a suburb that uh, he runs that out of his graduate too, which are always good places to go talk and usually somebody else will stop by. Um, but for the most part, if you want to talk fishing, you got to make an effort to go meet up with a few people that uh, you know that fish as well. Mm-hmm. There's a few fly fishing clubs as well that have uh, good communities that meet up once a month and everything like that. Um, just go have like a speaker and then just, uh, you know, a little bit of a BS session afterwards where everybody can talk fishing and, have a drink or two and talk to each other about it. Um, yeah, the community's come a long way since I first was kind of growing up here, I guess, where you didn't know anybody that fly fished. And personally, it was very secretive about everything I was doing because I didn't like anybody else finding out. It's, you trip at a trout lake and no one's catching, trolling their Len Thompson spoons and you show up and catch eight or 10 rainbows in an hour or two. And people start kind of looking at you, especially when they see you releasing them. So <laughs> and then as you get to, get to know more and more fly fishermen over the years. And yeah, so it's kind of in Saskatchewan, it's more just uh, rather than actively going somewhere where everybody meets, like a, any kind of a water animal, it's um, pre-planning and meeting up with buddies or anything like that. So mm-hmm. for me and Laurent, there's really not much. I'm not sure if there's maybe a handful of other people up here that fly fish and let alone uh, want to talk about it, <laughs> at least as much as I do. How big of a town is Laurent? It's about 1,200 people, but the greater LaRange area, there's kind of a few communities within 15 minutes. It's about 5,000 people. Um, it's an interesting town to live in. It's kind of sprawled out along the lakeshore, mm-hmm. uh, and it's the last stop to the north, essentially, for everything. There are more communities to the north, you know, gas stations and everything like that, but it's the last big grocery store. It's, you know, the last uh, big hardware store, everything like that, uh, and it's the end of the pavement. The pavement ends just up the road from us, going north into towards Stony Rapids. Hmm. There's another 600 kilometers of all-season road north of us, which I've driven, and that could be a six-hour drive or it could be a 16-hour drive, depending on conditions. <laughs> Considering you just made, I still can't get over the fact that you got in your vehicle and drove all the way down to Pyramid Lake from where you are. That seems like quite a long drive to me. Oh, yeah, it's everybody. Just everybody you mentioned that to you just blows their mind, but. 
if there's one thing I've learned living in Larange, it's that the closest town to the south or closest city is Prince Albert, which is I think about 230 kilometers. So to drive anywhere, I have to drive there first. So no matter where I drive, it's at least two hours to get to PA. And then going to Saskatoon, it's, you know, that's three and a half. And uh, if I want to go fish anywhere in southern Saskatchewan, it's that six to eight hours. So drives, uh, long drives don't seem so long anymore. <laughs> right. I always like to ask my guests, Chance, kind of uh, if you have any crazy, weird, or wonderful fish stories from your time on the water, whether that means uh, from your guiding trips or uh, just personal uh, trips, anything come to mind that kind of stands out? Uh, yeah, I guess there's a couple cool things I can think of. One, uh, not too much of a crazy story, but uh, a friend of mine hooked a rainbow in a small stream here in Saskatchewan. There's a little population of rainbows in it. And it's a good rainbow, you know, 18 to 20 inches, and he's, he's fighting it, and he's like, He's a he's a fisheries biologist too, and he says, "Dude, he's like, there's a there's a tapeworm hanging out of this thing," and I was like, "There's no way, there's like, they're originally stocked, they don't really have any parasites." So I kind of walk over and look. I was like, "Man, 100%, that's a snake hanging out of it." So he's like, "What?" He's like, "I was like, he's like, no, there's no way." I was like, "That's a snake." So we end up landing this thing and net it, and yeah, it's like an 18 inch rainbow with about 18 inches of garter snake hanging out of it. It's kind of trying to pass through. <laughs> Just looking at it, so he's holding it. I got a couple of pictures. He's like, "Do you want a picture with this thing?" I was like, "I'm not touching that thing." <laughs> Eating snakes, and um, another time I caught a, a brown out of a stream, and I rarely ever keep anything unless it dies. And this fish was just gilled and tried to revive it, and it just died there. I tried to let it try to be, and then ten minutes later, it hadn't moved, and it was belly up, just stopped breathing. So I cleaned it, and uh, it uh, was from a beaver pond, maybe an eighteen, nineteen inch brown, and cut it open, and. Uh, yeah, looked inside of it, and the juvenile muskrat, probably about a six-inch-long muskrat in its stomach. And <laughs> I, uh, I remember eating that, and it, it tasted like it had been eating muskrats its whole life. It's probably one of the worst-tasting fish I've ever ate. But I ate it because I was like, it, it died, and it, um, I killed it. It was my fault it died. So like, I'm damn well going to eat it, and it was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good story. I have no idea. Just for the record, I have no idea what muskrat tastes like. Yeah, I, I don't want to know <laughs> yeah as far as for guiding probably the craziest thing or maybe stupidest thing i've seen happen was i was doing an arctic ocean tour at the tree river and i uh, drove down to the there's a beach probably i don't know it's a half hour drive down the river and then you go across it's probably 15 minutes down the river from the lodge and then 15 minutes out across the uh, port after to like the edge of the ocean like the actual coast of the arctic ocean and there's some nice big rocks there they're real weathered uh, a couple of nice rocks you can jump off of, and we take people down there because a lot of people like jumping in the Arctic Ocean just to to say they did that polar plunge. And uh, it's never real warm, even if you do it in August, it's like five degrees Celsius max. Um, so you drive down there, and I thought maybe the guy that I'd taken down my gas wanted to jump in, and the uh, another guy from the camp brought down a girl at camp, and she jumped in. They they're gonna head back, and and so the guy I had didn't want to jump in, so we we're just fishing off the rocks and casting a fly rod and you can catch like an Atlanta cod pretty much every cast. They're not very big, but they fight pretty hard for their size. You get the odd like three, four pounds, but most of them are one pound or less. Usually if you get one under a pound, another one tries to eat it as you bring it in, which is always exciting. Um, they're pretty delicious though. So we usually bonk a few to take home for a, for a fish fry because it's, it's fresh cod. Um, so we're fishing there and the other guy and the girl headed back and all of a sudden I hear some yelling and it says, and I was like, what the hell is she saying? And the girl's from Germany and real strong German accent. And I was like thinking, I was like, there's a bear. <laughs> so I'm not sure how familiar you are with the uh, far north, but there's 
very, very few black bears up there, but there's bear and ground grizzlies, which are like a smaller cousin to the uh, mountain grizzlies. Not a whole lot smaller, but like a big one's like a little bigger than a big black bear, like probably a 500-pound bear and ground grizzly would be huge. Mm-hmm. So we come running back as fast as we can, and uh, another guy, he's standing in the rocks there, kind of all out of breath. And sure enough, down sitting in my boat is a grizzly bear, just chilling in the boat, sitting there. And, um, you know, he smelled fish in the net and in the boat, and I guess he came in to check things out and licked my, uh, I have a spinning rod in there, licked that handle perfectly clean, that cork, looked brand new. I looked at the next day, I was like, what the heck happened to this? And I was like, oh, he licked uh, all the sweat off of it. And, yeah, he crashed the net, and uh, at one point in time, he had a bucket on his head. I didn't get to see that, but uh, the girl took a picture of it. And, um, yeah, so we made some noise, and he eventually left. We kind of just started going that way. But before I got there, before they came and called for us, the uh, other guy walked down and tried to spook it away, and it kind of bluff-charged him a bit. So we, we got down there, and he uh, we pushed the boats out, and the bear's still maybe 100 yards from us. Like, we just ran to the boats, pushed them out, and they're pretty good swimmers, so we're going to get out of there as quick as we could. And he just looked at me like, make sure your fuel line's not chewed or anything. I was like, yeah, no, it's all pressurized. We had a dive line. He kind of leans over real quietly, and he's like, did you bring any spare gitch? And I was like, no, why? He's like, oh, don't worry about it. And he just drove away. <laughs> But he knew we were going to jump in the water. So to this day, I don't know whether or not he was joking, but I still find that extremely funny. <laughs> I, you're the first person I've talked to that's actually had a grizzly bear in their boat. Yeah, that was something I'd never want to repeat. <laughs> <laughs> if you could change something about fly fishing, uh, is there anything that kind of kind of irks you a little bit or you'd like to see us do a little differently? Uh, I'd say probably the competitiveness of it, like the last few years, especially with everything online between not necessarily trying to one-up each other, but just some of the online stuff where people maybe are posting locations and other people just remember it out. And I don't like either side of it. I don't like the people reaming them out. I don't like the people posting the locations or anything like that either. And then just that, I don't know. I like fly fishing because it's me versus a fish and not necessarily even versus the fish. I don't think of them as an adversary or anything. I, um, I just want to enjoy them for a few moments in time, get to see them. And I think a lot of it, kind of become a little commercialized where people are trying to get biggest, the biggest fish they can or the most numbers of fish and kind of advertise it a little bit like that. Um, mm-hmm. That would be probably my, the thing I like the least about it is uh, you can just sum it up like the internet ruined fishing, which I'm sure everybody thinks, but at the same time, I'm, I'm guilty of it too. I like seeing pictures of fish online. I check them out and I like sharing pictures of fish and it's just, yeah. I like seeing it, especially in long winter months here, we've got six months of winter. So, fly fishing is not an option so it's kind of a the only way to see anything and get ideas or for fly tying or anything like that as well but chance if somebody wanted to check out some of these beautiful fish you're catching in in the in the far north in saskatchewan pyramid lake wherever you're fishing is there where can they go to check out some some pics i post some pics on instagram um a lot of them i'll, I'll admit i just hoard uh <laughs> just for myself to look here in the winter time but uh yeah on instagram i uh, can you can check me out on there. That's probably where I post the most fish. I really don't post anything on Facebook. Uh, the odd picture of just fish up north, but I don't share much on there. Yeah, It's kind of just for connecting with friends and whatnot. Yeah, on Instagram would be uh, at CC Presty. And what about, uh, might as well plug Plumber's Arctic Lodges while we're at it. Um, yeah, yeah, let's for do, sure. Yeah, yeah. How, how do people get a hold of uh, Plumber's and uh, some of their great lodges up north? The website would be, I think, Plumber's Lodges dot com or uh, plumbersarcticlodges.com would be your best bet. It's got the link to all the different lodges, whether you want to go to Great Slave Lake, Great Bear Lake, the Tree River, if you want to do self-guided at Great Bear or any of the lodges, the two lodges there. 
everything was online there, kind of descriptions of it, pictures, there's some video footage. Uh, they modernized the website a year or two ago, and it actually looks really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd be your best bet for that. Um, they have, they have a somewhat active social media presence, depending who's running it at the times and what time of year it is. Uh, in the summertime, there's usually pretty good live updates of any big fish being caught within a week. Like if there's a 50 pounder, usually within a week, there's a picture of it up. Um, which I like when I'm not up there, I just, I admit, I check that every day just to see what's being caught and like message friends. Cause there's really poor internet up there, but there is internet. So like they can get a picture out if somebody gets a 60 pounder, they usually, you know, send it to their buddies and let them know. Well, I think plumbers has like five different lodges. Are you always normally guiding out of the same lodge? I've done out of the tree river outpost camp. Uh, I've actually spent the most time there of any camp, I guess there and then trophy lodge. I've been at each one for about, you know, that five weeks or so of guiding. And then I have guided at the main lodge a little bit as well, but I've spent more time there just like working on shore and helping out and doing guide training. Um, just the way it worked out, I got sent to Trophy Lodge my first year and then came back. We only guided for a week at the main lodge and then uh, was up at the Tree River for a few days. And then the next two times I went up, it was just straight to the Tree River, which is a, that's a small outpost camp. So it's essentially just um, a lodge it's like a lodge kitchen, like kind of a common room. And then everybody's got like a cabin for four people kind of thing. And then there's like a shared one shower facility there and like one laundry room. So it's, I like that one a lot because you're just way up there in the boonies. And, you know, in order to get Wi-Fi, you have to be pretty much sitting on the steps of the store that has Wi-Fi like anywhere else. It doesn't work. So <laughs> you're pretty cut off from the world up there, which I really enjoyed. I got to say, sometimes that's not a bad thing. Oh, that's like half the reason I go is just to like forget about everything and, um, it's not bad though. Last year, uh, I was up for two weeks and they had guests staying and the way kind of everything worked out, two guests wanted to stay. So they needed an extra guide to stay. And then they were going to bring in a different size plane if they could do it, just a little bit smaller plane. So I, uh, obviously jumped on that opportunity to stay in the extra week because I wanted to anyway, but that's when the, that internet comes in handy for contacting people to the South, to uh, rearrange flights and, uh, let my, my manager know that I wasn't, or I got permission to stay an extra week kind of thing. And, uh, I could have bumped somebody else and laughed like somebody else could have been the odd man out, but I kind of wanted to be the odd man out at the same time. So <laughs> the connectivity is good for that reason. I can honestly say it's, you're living a lot of people's dreams up there, chasing some, some big fish. And uh, I want to thank you, Chance, for uh, for taking the time uh, to chat with us today. I appreciate it. No, for sure. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for the invite. It uh, made me appreciate some of the things I do even more, I guess. So We've been chatting today with Chance Presti, fisheries biologist and guide for Plumbers Arctic Lodges. Thanks for joining us. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water. Thank you.